DJ and PK, it is time to talk jazz basketball with the radio voice of the Utah Jazz, David Locke. He joins us right now on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Lease any phone and get an iPad or Samsung Tab A for $99.99. Visit the Sprint store nearest you. David, good morning. Good morning, DJ. Good morning, PK. How's everybody today? Good. Excellent. So the Jazz have got a five-game losing streak. Is there uh, anything in the numbers that just jumps out at you and says this part of the game they really need to improve, or is it as simple as they need a confidence back, they need a little mojo, because they should have finished off that last game and we shouldn't be talking about the streak now anyway? Yeah, I mean, if they'd won that last one, which they should have, they really were not very sharp and didn't play with the same kind of gusto that the Nuggets did. Um, You know, we wouldn't be talking about it. I, I'm, I look at it more over the stretch of since Clarkson's there, so that's 20 games. They're 14 and six. They're about 14th or 15th in the league defensively. They're still number one in the league offensively in that stretch. Um, the numbers have kind of come back to life now. If you look at those, Joe's not shooting 50% from three. Royce is not shooting 50% from three. So I think the elevated numbers for a little while probably weren't entirely accurate. The numbers the last five games where Joe's shooting 20% from three and Royce is shooting 20% from three and the Yang's shooting 20% from three are probably not accurate either. So kind of somewhere in between both of those, I think, and that's where I get, you know, they're 14 and six. They've not done well against above 500 teams, um, but they are, you know, overall, they're the second best differential in that time period. So I think there's a bigger sample, correct me if I'm wrong, of Joe not producing the same type of numbers when Conley is there. Is there anything that can be done to get Joe to, to produce better with Conley being in the lineup? So I went through and ran a bunch of numbers. He gets the exact same amount of front court touches when Conley's playing and what he does, and he's getting different types of touches. Really what the numbers say is he's, he's not bringing the ball up the floor, right? Like, you actually look at he's like, behind 20 backcourt touches um, per game. So it's, you know, the 20 times a night where he, he brings the ball to the floor, he's doing that less. Uh, you know, frankly, I think he has to adapt. Uh, this team is going to be better with Mike Conley, and Mike Conley's a part of this team. And, you know, so Joe, maybe in Joe's ideal world, Joe brings the ball to the floor and gets to play point guard all the time. That seems unlikely when we have three point guards. And so, as difficult as that is, and, and I'm not trying to say it dismissively, but I think that that's what he's going to have to do. He's got to figure out a way to get himself comfortable and, and stay engaged, and there are. I mean, I went and rewatched it. There's, there's you know, times where he comes down the floor and two or three times in a row he'll go down to the corner and maybe get one touch in that time period. And, and, and so he's not, you know, having that, that same engagement level as he had before. But he's going to have to, frankly, figure that out because – that's what a, you know. That's what happens on rolls. Sometimes you play on really good teams. So part of this is the Jazz need to win to climb in the playoff race. But part of this is you know what are the other teams in the playoff race doing? What do you think of Houston dealing Capella? Is that going to elevate them out of a you know fighting the Jazz and the Nuggets and maybe the Thunder? You know three, four, five, six, and all that. Is that going to elevate them up with the Lakers and the Clippers and have them battling for second in the West? I don't think it's going to elevate them that much. I mean, let's, let's make sure we understand the first thing they did. The first thing they did was get under the luxury tax, right? So one of the bigger stories of the offseason that people haven't really talked about is that when Russell Westbrook got traded to Houston, the way his contract read was that he got a 
balloon payment on the top front of, end of his contract, and the Rockets had to renegotiate that contract because they couldn't make the balloon payment. So when the luxury tax comes up, you have to write a check in one huge large amount on, I think, July 1st when the luxury tax hits. The Rockets didn't have that money to do that. So the main thing they did is, if you look at that trade, you they the way that trade worked, they could be $7 million. They could save as much as $7 million on that trade, and they saved 6.9. So, yes, they've made a change, and they've gotten to this small lineup, and it's going to be really interesting. But the primary thing, their primary goal, don't kid yourself, was to get under the luxury tax. Now, why, why do they trade Capella? Because they're playing more isolation with Russell Westbrook on the floor. Uh, it gave him two non-shooters. And when, when Capella's off the floor, Westbrook gets 50% of his shot to the rim. And when Capella was on the floor, he got 36% of his shot to the rim. So there's a basketball reason, too, on the offensive side. And Mike D'Antoni said it. You know, we got to figure out how to get Russ going. And that's their primary goal is to figure out how to get Russ going. And we saw it last night. Against the Lakers, you have 41. You shade toward Harden. You flip it to Russ. He gets to drive to the basket. There's no big in the middle. And he, and he got to the rim, I think, for half his shot last night. So they're going to be a really tough team to guard. I think the league's going to have a few chances to look at it. The coaches in this league are brilliant. Adapt to it. Figure out what the rotations are going to be and how you're going to confront it. And I think they'll still be very, very good offensively, but I think the, the league will figure them out a little bit. I don't think they'll make a run if the Lakers or Clippers playing this way. I think it's creative. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm not in the camp of, oh, this is ridiculous or anything, but I do think it's worth noting the primary thing they did was get on the luxury tax. How about Morris to the Clippers? What do you think of that one? It's a good pickup. Gives them another body on LeBron, another body on Anthony Davis. I, I, I don't think he's, you know, he's a far better shooter. Mo Harkless is a bad shooter. Mo Harkless does a lot of things well, but for what their playoff ma- matchups are going to be, it's pretty good. He can play center against the Rockets. Um, he's not a great rebounder. He's a little overstated in that. He's not an elite athlete. He's a little overstated on that, but he can really shoot it. Um, he's going to have to be willing to use less possessions. But, frankly, they had a void there. They were playing Patrick Patterson and Jamichael Green, and, you know, unless they slid LeBron or, or unless they slid, slid Kawhi or Paul George to the four. They really didn't have a four, so that's a that's a that's a good pickup, filling a void. Um, you know, I like they, they get a little thin without Mo Harkless. I still think they have a Lou Williams issue. One, he's not playing well. Two, he can't defend, um, and they don't need him. They don't need a high usage player with the amount of guys they have on the floor right now. But that team's really really good. Clippers did not, or excuse me, the Clippers. The Lakers did not move Kuzma. Do you think the Clippers are now a little better than the Lakers, regardless of what the standings say? Well, I think the Lakers are a better team than the Clippers. Um, I think they're long. I think they're defensively. They can do amazing things. I think the Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee combination coupled with Anthony Davis and LeBron and then Bradley and Caruso and Kuzma. I mean, they're just so long defensively. But when the two teams have played, Kawhi's better than LeBron now. So when they go head-to-head... There's nothing out there that shows that the Clippers aren't better than the Lakers when they play head to head. I think for the I think the Lakers will be the number one seed. Um, I think the Clippers have not are not cohesive yet. Uh, but when they're in that playoff series, it does feel as though the you know the two times we've seen them play this year, the Clippers have been much better than the Lakers. Are the Nuggets for whatever reason a bad matchup for Mitchell? 
sure seems it, doesn't it? Yeah. You know what? You know what I think on that game? And I'm, I don't like. I don't really know what I'm saying here. I don't. Remember that pick early in the game on Mitchell? Yeah. Like I don't think he was right after that. I, I went back and watched that second half. It was just a weird game by his his body his his body language wasn't normal. There wasn't even after the dunk, the big dunk he had on the lob uh, from I think Clarkson. Yeah. He didn't he didn't have his usual kind of bounce to him. I I, I think he really got jarred on that. And I, I think he was just kind of off all night because of it. I don't, you know, he went and shot after the game, so I'm not, you know, I must have felt all right. But I, I, I think that, I think he got jostled in some way there. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what, like, um, and he's, you know, he's been battling some physical ailments that are not public that uh, may have gotten hit there. And, and so I, I just, just watching him, that second half was such a weird game for him. Stripped from behind by Monty Morris, Gary Harris getting out to that ball before him, knocked away by Dozier in that late play. Those are our Donovan Mitchell plays. So, um, I mean, I do think there's two games in a row now where you have got him and Torrey Craig. He just simply did not score on Torrey Craig in the previous matchup, like zero points in 45 matchups. So that's you know that's the worst case scenario for him. It's a six-seven guy who's as strong as he is, who is pretty athletic and can stay with him. That's you know, if a team can do that to you and you're six foot one, that's not a Donovan Mitchell issue. That's that's every small guard in the history of the NBA. Jazz have to play the uh, Mavericks here in a few days, and Porzingis has been going off with Doncic out. Uh, assuming that continues, I guess number one, what does that say about the Mavericks, and number two, how does that impact the Jazz' ability to beat the Mavericks? Featuring Kristaps is going off a little early. Like all the research I've done about players coming off an ACL. Um, <clears throat> no matter how long it takes them and how long the rehab is, All-Star break, the backside of All-Star break always seems to be this kind of moment where they relax and then they take off and, and get kind of click in and get better. We even saw it with Dante. Um, so it's interesting because he's a little, you know, he's taking off here in February. The timing's the same, but I always thought it was actually the All-Star break itself. Uh, he's been, he's been electric, uh, and he's you know when he's good, he's as unguardable as any player we've ever had in the league at seven three. So I mean Dallas is really really good. They use their their auxiliary pieces as well as anyone in the league. Um, you know Maxi Kleber and those guys. Uh, Dwight Powell's injury meant that they've had to change kind of how they're playing, and they seem to have found a comfort zone. And when they, and they may get Luca back by the time we play them. So with these games leading into the All-Star break, is it really crucial for them to at least get a couple of them to get into some momentum going into the week-long break? I, mean, I think we need to beat a good team. Like, I think the guys are probably – I haven't talked to them, but they're aware, right? They, they, they heard it. They've even commented. Everyone was saying we haven't beat good teams. and So they do. I mean, they, they listen. They know, what, they know what everyone's saying. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to go beat Portland tonight and see them go get one or two of those on the road and, I'll come back and, and try to get Miami and try to try to have some sort of a positive mojo going to the break. You know, it's funny. It's over this last half dozen games, the best team they played in the best, most fair circumstances was Dallas, and they won that. San Antonio and Portland have losing records. Houston and Denver, they played two stripped-down lineups. 
And when they lost at Denver, they were on the second night of a back-to-back. So the whole narrative that the schedule has gotten a lot of tougher doesn't, doesn't really ring true with me. It just seems more like after you win 19 out of 21, something goes wrong, you lose your edge, whatever it is, whether it's mental or physical. But blaming it on how hard the schedule has gotten, you can't really buy that. No, I agree. I mean, they should have won. Of the five games they've lost, I think they should have won four of them. You know, I think winning in Portland's hard. So maybe that's, you know, you're not going to win. Maybe they should have won three of them because you're not going to actually go into Portland and win both games this year, and you're not going to go to San Antonio and win both games this year. So maybe you should have got one of those two. Um, and then you win, and you probably lose in Denver. So they should have won three of the five of the games, of the games they've lost. I, I would agree with you. Are there any guys, whether they're not currently in the league or going to be bought out in the next few days, do you think that any of these teams in the West would be interested in any of them? I just ran through the buyout market um, today. I just kind of went through the depth charts of every team. Found very little. I'm assuming Sacramento got Alex Len because they want him. Um, part of the problem is that they're in the West, at least, most of the teams think they're going to make the playoffs. So, you know, the buyout – is somebody, you know, James Johnson would be, con- like, if we believed yeah. he's really talented, he's really skilled, but he's got an extra year on his deal, so I don't think he's getting bought out. Detroit's clearly not competing anymore, so Marquise Morris is a possibility there. Cleveland, Kevin Love's not getting bought out. He's got, like, three years left on his deal. Tristan Thompson doesn't want to be bought out because he wants to be a free agent, and there's so little money on the market next year that it's better off for free agents to be with their team that has bird rights so they can do a sign-and-trade than going to a team that, and losing your bird rights and not being able to be used in a sign-and-trade for, for real money. So it's, it's disadvantageous for Tristan Thompson to get bought out. So, I mean, I, New York, I, do, I doubt they'd buy out Bobby Portis. Um, I don't really understand why they would do that. So I ran through it, and I, I don't see a robust buyout market. China's interesting. I had read that with the coronavirus, they were going to release anybody from China that's under contract earlier than usual. But that's Ty Lawson and Lance Stevenson and guys like that. So I don't think there's a lot of players there. I, I don't see a robust buyout market. Um, when I looked at it today, I mean, it only takes one to miss it, but – um, I, I suspect Detroit buys out Marquise Morris, um, and then you know who knows where he goes. He might decide he wants to go be back with his brother. They're very close. So, last thing before I let you go here, the Jazz have given up some really big runs when Rudy sits down, regardless of who they've gone to as the backup. Do you think that they start experimenting at some point with a lineup without a true center? And in a Houston game on Sunday, it could be the perfect opportunity to do it since Houston would be playing without a big anyway. So you go with some kind of uh, Joe Ingles and Bogdanovich and uh, maybe Royce O'Neal and, and do some lineup like that and not have a big guy out there? I mean, I think you're right in the sense that Houston's the right time to do it, but like, who's rebounding? Royce and Joe. <laughs> I mean, Bogey. that's yeah, Bogey. I mean, Mike, I mean, Mike Conley had eight rebounds he the other did. night, right? Yeah. I mean, I rewatched the game, and for all of it's really interesting to watch Bogey because, like, for all the things he does brilliantly, he's just not a good rebounder. Like, he's got his body on the guy, he's doing all the things, he's trying, 
He just doesn't – he can't get off the body to get a rebound. Like, that's a skill, right? Out of area – we don't have a lot of guys that are out of area rebounders. In other words, where they go get a rebound. Um, you know, one of the key plays of the game in my mind was a long rebound, and Joe sort of tracked it, I'd say, marginally, and Jordan Clarkson kind of mistracked it, and Torrey Craig got it. And that was a huge play. I mean, there was a bunch of million others, but we had a little run going right there, and I had a chance to – so – I. I kind of could hear in your tone of voice, even as you were saying it, like, yeah, you're probably going to have to try it against Houston. But, like, so basically you're playing Royce O'Neal at 6'4 as your center. Well, we've heard Quinn multiple times talk about his defensive rebounding, so I would think he'd have to be part of that five-man lineup if they were going to, you know, sit Rudy and then not come in with one of the two backups. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you would hope that Tony Bradley could roll the basket well enough to try to take advantage of a Robert Covington or a – P.J. Tucker. P.J. Tucker's pretty stout, but um, yeah, I don't have a lot of confidence in us going to that lineup. I mean, question, we don't do zone, um, and I wonder whether we're going to start. The other question is, as everyone's going small, is Milwaukee's defense is really interesting. So Milwaukee just places Brooke Lopez in the restricted area, denies the rim, and lets you take as many threes above the break as you want. Like, we're going to guard the corners, but you're going to take as many above-the-break threes. If you go look at cleaning the glass, I think they're allowing a considerable more amount of, of percentage of shots above-the-break threes as anyone in the league. It's working, obviously. They're the number one defense in the league. There are some massings that work to it, too. Um, it's a little risky, and it feels uncomfortable. They, lose, they lost to Philadelphia earlier this year on Christmas because Philadelphia went and hit threes. If you actually look at almost every single one of Milwaukee's losses, the opponents hit a season-high threes. Um, largely because they just been, they give them to you. I, I wonder if we're going to have to do something of that nature that's it's really uncomfortable. But just decide, you know what, if you're playing five out and we got Rudy, we're not letting you get to the rim. And Rudy's going to guard Russell Westbrook. And you're going to have to shoot 18-footers. Or you're going to shoot above the break threes. But Rudy's staying at the rim. And it's wild to, in this you know in this day and age to be willing to give up an open three. But Maybe maybe that's where you have to you have to go to if this is where the league's going. All right, but, th- oh, we got the league has gotten so good at taking away the rim that it's forcing teams to go small. David, we appreciate it. We got to run here. Thanks a lot, and we will uh, hear you tonight on the broadcast. All right, see you, David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz.